Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What's your favorite community? Hey, 10. <laughs> Coolest aircraft I got. It's the Warthog. I like it. I think it's the best. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Kodiak Shack podcast. Today, I have Julian Caps, And for all you uh, old school Kodiak Shack listeners, uh, you know that he was our very first guest on the Kodiak Shack podcast. Uh, so I appreciate Julian being back. He's at Crowdbotics. We're going to talk about Crowdbotics. We're also going to talk about uh, some of the events that he's been able to go to because uh, luckily Julian uh, has his ear to the ground. So what's coming out, new, ITSIC, all those types of uh, AFA conferences. Uh, he's able to kind of hear from uh, military leadership, but then also obviously he works in the innovation companies. Uh, so he has a really good perspective and I appreciate it. So Julian, thanks for being back. Uh, for all those who didn't hear the first episode, uh, go ahead and tell us about yourself. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Julian. I am in industry, so sort of the enemy, depending on how you look at it. Um, <laughs> we are a, I work for Crowdbotics, crowdbotics.com, and we are kind of relatively new. We've been doing defense for coming up on four years now. Um, so we're not historically like a large or even medium-sized defense contractor with millions and millions of dollars in contracts. We are historically a software company from Silicon Valley, so from the Bay Area. We're kind of a standard startup. Um, Our cup of tea or our kind of, I guess, like strength is data science so far in the Air Force. Um, All of our defense contracts are with USAF. And basically, we have kind of carved out a data science, data analytics kind of niche um, and we're going to run with that. I think that's kind of our, our biggest offering. We do on the commercial side, a bunch of different stuff for a bunch of different size companies. Um, so we don't really have kind of like a core offering. Um, we do a bunch of different things in the software realm um, for a bunch of different, like I said, a bunch of different size companies. But for USAF, data science is kind of our cup of tea. We're looking to, in 2023 and beyond um, to switch that up, um, to kind of expand out. I think there's more that we can do. And I think there's more that the DOD needs, um, from Silicon Valley. We'll get into that. Um, but for now, uh, data science is kind of our, our cup of tea. We here at the Kodiak Shack podcast would like to welcome our new sponsor, Adamus Cyber. Working with the military means there are some minimum cybersecurity requirements that are in every contract. Complying with these requirements can be painfully slow and really take your company's focus off your military customers and end users. Thankfully, the team at Atomus has simplified the process exclusively for small businesses working with the military. It should be expected that security requirements are going to be a part of working with the military, but they don't have to be difficult. Learn why prior guests on the podcast like Arun from OpsLab or Brian from Rescon, use Atomus to comply with the NIST 800-171, DFARS 7012, and CMMC cybersecurity requirements in their contracts. 
Check out their website at www.adamuscyber.com and tell them you heard about them from the Kodiak Shack podcast. Their website will be in the show notes. We appreciate all the companies that want to work with the military, and we understand working with the government isn't always the easiest thing, uh, but we appreciate companies like Adamus that make it just a little bit easier. Yeah, and I think one of the one of the things that as people who may not know, a lot of companies that are working with the DOD and it, and it is recommended, they have a commercial side. You know, they're not just a defense innovation company. They have a large commercial side and then they take that corporate knowledge and then they expand that to the DOD because turns out DOD has the same or similar problem sets that corporate America has. Uh, so At I least for them, software. At least yeah, for like tech. Definitely. Yeah, big time. Well, and it brings credibility. It. Like the commercial world wants to see. They love like, oh, we do. Here's what we do for the government. They're like, oh, sweet. Good enough for Uncle Sam. Good enough for us. And then vice versa. Same thing. Like uh, the DOD loves to see some commercial proof, kind of, you know, social proof there, customer proof. Well, and I think there's probably a little bit of the uh, kind of the grass is greener feeling where you're talking to people in corporate America and you're like, yeah, we build a uh, debrief software for fighter pilots. And they're like, son of a gun. Then you talk to fighter pilots and then they're, you're like, yeah, we actually build a lot of software for like corporate companies. And we're like, dang, that's sick. Like, you know, so each, each side yeah. probably views the other <laughs> side as like a very interesting uh, group of people. So the, let me uh, tell you, so one of those is right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> one of those yeah. is actually right. <laughs> Working with the DoD has been painful. I like it. I'm a patriot. I feel like it's a good thing. You end up meeting cool guys like Vader here, but uh, it is a huge pain in the ass on a bunch of other fronts. It's a massive struggle. Totally different from what you're used to in the Silicon Valley world. Timelines, specifically, I would say, is kind of the biggest change. Um, But yeah, it it is greener if you can stick it out. Yeah, and I think... Uh, so this was a question I was thinking about before uh, we were talking today is, all right, so as you sit here today, think back to when you were wet behind the ears, defense innovation, Julian, and uh, what were your preconceived notions? What were your expectations? Like, oh, when I work with the DOD, it is going to be X, Y, and Z. And then what have you experienced and what is now your perspective of kind of that defense innovation space? That's a good question. That's a really good question. First of all, I thought I would be helicoptered everywhere. I thought as soon as we <laughs> sign this contract, I'm getting picked up in the jet. I'm flying around. I'm goose. Yeah. I want to be goose. Yeah. I want to be flown around. <laughs> I thought I would get to parachute by now. Um, so a lot of, lot of disappointment. Um, yeah, it, it's almost, it's a good question. It's almost just such a massive lack of knowledge of how things get done. And I guess that is a testament to how different the DOD is than the commercial world. Just like the, the fact that they basically tell you what they need. There are ways to kind of get around that and work directly with people who are brainstorming and thinking, hey, we need to be the tip of the spear in you know AI, ML, or whatever. Um, but for the most part, they tell you what they want. The budget is way ahead of time already decided. So there is no like, negotiation or pricing and packaging and like toying with that. Um, you know, there's, there's some huge differences. So I would say just 
like pure ignorance is is what I think of when I think back a couple of years, um, just completely not knowing what it's like. Um, I, I will say some, to, to get more specific, I thought it was much smaller. And I, I guess I, I knew it was huge, but I just thought that it was maybe less siloed or less stovepiped is, is probably the, the, the way to say it. I didn't realize that there's not kind of like, you know, you hear people say DAF or big Air Force and you think like, okay, there's just like six guys in the Pentagon making decisions and it's like there there might be but then there's two hallways over another guy they've never talked to about what they're doing and he's also spending you know a billion dollar half a billion dollars on similar overlapping stuff so um and then of course you get down to like it just branches out the more you you kind of go down Magcoms stepping on each other's toes or overlapping and then individual squadrons we get down to like really kind of frustrating examples we did a contract with seymour johnson kind of our 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 pride and joy our kind of like home base if you will our first collaborator uh was seymour johnson the fourth out there and they built just kind of you know luck of the draw with the ips that they had and they have a cae guy who is I don't really understand it because he's he, he, it seems more like he works for the Air Force than CAE, but he's out there and he's like real gung-ho. And so kind of just luck of the draw with the people that they got, they have really nice, I don't know, they, they've got pretty good sleds. They built their own like VR uh, training sleds and it's not part of the core, I think it's not technically part of the training syllabus, but they do as much as they can in the sleds. And they sh- at least show like footage and they help like student pilots really kind of learn a lot of the kind of ideation uh, instead of using the sticks in the classroom before they go fly. And I've talked to other bases, other squadrons around the United States. Hey, do y'all have the same setup? I just assumed, of course, right? Like everybody's, you know, buying the same shit. No, they sometimes they've never even heard of like the you know the setup at Seymour Johnson. They've never they've certainly never seen it. Um, if they have, you know, like an Amazon shopping cart. Hey, here's how we set ours up. We took the you know the throttle off a of warthog. We took the you know yoke off a of video game toy. We have the seat from a you know video game whatever. Uh, all of that stuff put together to make like a pretty decent sled. That's the only reason they would have found that out is like text message. If they knew one of the IPs from the academy or something like that. And I know this this is like your neck of the woods big time. You were in the same position at Holloman trying to throw stuff together, asking people from, you know, your academy days, hey, what are y'all doing at Mountain Home or what are you doing, you know, wherever the hell. Um, and that unfortunately is like how it gets done. If you want to see like kind of the bleeding edge at the bottom or at the you know squadron level at the kind of you know, warfighter level, it is thrown together, luck of the draw, a lot of overlap, nobody really kind of like talking to each other. Um, and that I never saw coming. So big, long-winded answer for you there. Well, and, and you had a lot of lot of points there. Uh, one thing I got to correct because uh, the Academy boys will get mad. So I went to Fresno State. I didn't go to to the Academy. They'd, uh, oh, they'd nice. take some... They'd, probably say stolen valor there if I didn't would they that. would they really would they be like <laughs> no I'm just kidding even though you made no, it they too <laughs> yeah it nah, seems like that's uh, the more important achievement is like yeah, I actually it probably depends on who you ask you know uh, yeah. but yeah well, <laughs> you look at you know the Pentagon and when I was talking to Paco Benitez the first time on the podcast uh, he said I think this was on the show uh, he said that there are more people in the Pentagon today 
than when they built the Pentagon. And you're like, hmm. but before there were computers, before that, you know, when everything that was done was like hand carried places, there are more people, even though we've had force reductions, there's more generals today. Uh, so it's, it, it is, I don't want to say it's a jobs program, but, but it has become hmm. like, we just have a lot more people in the organization, even though the organization is like aggressively smaller to the point where we right. have a building that doesn't even fit all the people that are supposed to be in that building. Uh, so they have like, you know, satellite buildings for people to work out of. So we have a ton of people. And I say that because the bigger your, your organization gets, the, the more difficult it's going to be for everyone to be on the same page. And if you think, you know, and I assume, you know, there, there are, there are companies, private companies, not even just military or, or DOD organizations that experience the same thing. You know, you're just going to have that, like the left hand doesn't know what the right hand does, but I think it's aggressively exacerbated between the military because you have, like you said, the Pentagon and in the Pentagon, there's, I don't know, tens or hundreds of different organizations that are broken down into subgroups that those people don't know each other. Cause one of the people is from the acquisition side and you know, they're a five and there's a three and, and you know, so there's, there's a lot of, of people who, like you said, maybe working on the exact same thing, spending different money over the same pots of money on the same thing in two different companies. And you're like, man, we, this may be good or this may be bad. Uh, and then we had the, um, Emily Murphy came on and just like you said, like you didn't realize the, the mass of the organization until, uh, you kind of got in it. And same thing. I thought like Sibbers and small business innovation, I, I was like on the leading edge and turns out they've been doing like SBA, like small business stuff since the yeah. 80s. And I was like, Oh, well, touche. So yeah, she, she kind of blew my mind <laughs> on the, the fact that there was so much stuff, you know, has, have been going on over the years. Not to kiss ass, um, but I'm glad you brought up that episode. I, I've literally sent the Emily Murphy episode to like five. It, it's like a standard thing. I have the link saved on my little notes thing on my laptop now. When we, like if we're hiring or if we're like trying to talk to somebody at another company and trying to kind of bridge the gap, it, it, anytime that I need to explain a high level here's kind of the lay of the land for us right now. Here's kind of our sweet spot right now. Learn the landscape. I send them the Emily Murphy episode. It's like such a nice little, you know, and if they dig deep, they go, you can find like her papers or stuff that she's written. She's written some stuff I found um, that where she basically like goes into the same stuff yeah. that she talked about on the podcast. But I literally, I, I've sent that episode around now as like a habit um, when I'm trying to explain. She does a better job obviously than I can of kind of talking it through. Um, so as a, like selfishly, um, as an industry guy, thanks for having that episode. It's enormously <laughs> informative. I don't think people, like, I think people should be forced to sit down and listen to Emily talk for like five minutes before they ever start trying a defense contract. When I, that I've never used defense contract as was, a verb. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, uh, and that was kind of my goal. Like my true goal of the podcast was exactly that. I, I am not the expert. I'm not the expert on, you know, Crowdbotics's data-driven readiness stuff. I'm not the expert on Cyber stuff. I, I want the experts to come here and talk to that. And then my goal is exactly that. I want people to say the best way that you can get a dip a toe or get like a 30,000 foot view of this process 
go listen to Emily speak because again, she's, she's been doing it for years and years. She was the director of GSA. Like she literally ran the organization. And so, I mean, yeah, she, if, if anybody can demystify how you get money and you know, money moves around, it was her. So I was, I was, I mean, it was serendipitous. The fact that it was a friend of a friend of a friend and they were like, Oh yeah, you know, talk to Emily Murphy. So yeah, that was great. The, uh, the article that you sent me the other day, was, uh, um, it was talking about how, uh, general Brown, uh, was saying that we kind of need to kind of pick some winners or, or just more handholding, I would say in getting innovation companies that are doing things that we want and helping them get to the finish line. Cause I would, I would assume you agree and correct me if I'm wrong, that there is zero handholding when you're a new company, even though you're meeting your contracts and you're doing all that, there's not a ton of government direct help getting you in the right rooms and conversations and getting you money. Would you agree? I I couldn't agree more. I I outright agree. Um, There's not enough. And it's almost, it's kind of like a, you don't want to point a finger. Like I don't want to blame anyone for that. That's not necessarily any one person's fault. It's, it's more missed opportunity. I think that it's a, it's a, it is part of the reason why we're not like the DOD isn't the bleeding edge. The private sector is, and if you go to China, probably the reverse. And uh, that's one of the reasons is in my opinion, one of the guilty parties, there's not this matchmaking mechanism. And I want to, it kind of goes hand in hand with what we were just saying again, a little bit ago about like any large organization is going to have overlap or it's going to have repeated efforts with these task force I also don't want to blame the DOD for doing that or the USAF for doing that. That's, that's part of the, that, that, that happens. And I think in fact, that can be good because sometimes it's again, luck of the draw with the actual staff, a task force I would like to see pop up and, and repeat, even if it's overlapping and duplicated efforts uh, is, is what we've talked about before, almost where you have like a war, someone who's close to the problem warfighter or recent warfighter, not a bureaucrat, someone who's who's really close to the problem, teamed up with maybe like the bleeding edge, like the the person who can actually do it, like what's called a Stanford student, a recently graduated Stanford nerd or something like that, and then some sort of contracting body. And I think that that is a necessary kind of Knights the Roundtable group to put together because you can't just throw out, hey, we need this and expect like good things to happen. You're going to get, you know, a couple of years late from the B team. Um, Whereas if you have kind of like the proactivity of, hey, let's go. These guys already did it, you know, in Silicon Valley. This company already did that. And then you go snatch them up and you have somebody who's close to the problem on the DOD side saying, hey, we don't quite need it that way. This is kind of how we want the problem solved. We, I understand that AI can help with that. I don't understand AI, blah, blah, blah. That's, I think that's kind of how to bring that together. And I don't see that. I do see that sometimes. Like I see AFWorks trying to do that. I see some groups trying to do that. So I don't want to shit on anybody um, because I'm not the first person to say this, but I do think that that is something that needs to be doubled down on. I think that truly... Like, and we can go on and on and on about this. I, I hear um, from all these conferences, kind of one thing that I keep hearing over and over is relatively out of the game people, people who really know their stuff, one stars, two stars, or 
you know, senior executives at like Lockheed or wherever. Um, maybe I shouldn't name names, but senior executives at prime, <laughs> large prime contractors in the United States yeah, um, saying, hey, we need to to close this gap. We got to go scoop up the smart kids. We got to go to MIT. We got to go to Berkeley. We got to go to Stanford. We got to get the smart kids. I think that's a mistake. And I, I kind of talked to Paco about this real briefly, and he feels that it is moving in the right direction, that there is kind of this trend of pairing up the companies that actually support those smart kids and get juice for the squeeze, pairing those companies up with the big prime contractors instead of trying to cut out the middleman. I do not think you're going to get the juice for the squeeze if you hire those kids directly. First of all, they don't want to work for the government in a lot of cases. That's a sad kind of truth, but you know, you're not going to they're not going to win by trying to recruit those kids. They don't want to be, you know, in the military. A lot of times they're not even, they, they don't even know that's an option. Maybe some of them would be open to it, but they don't even realize that's like an option if they're a data scientist coming out of MIT. Um, and they don't probably want to work for like CAE or, you know, wherever the hell Raytheon. Um, if they do, if they do get in the door there, I don't think that they have I don't think they have the structure, I would call it like infrastructure internally at those large companies to get really, really forward thinking innovation from those kids. Um, and so I think that the proper pairing is and the, the trend that I was talking with Paco about, I would like to see the DAF kind of urge, I don't want to put responsibility on them or try to invent new government regulation, but I would, I would like to see the DAF urge large primes to, to reach out to Silicon Valley and try to partner with them for the stuff that's really difficult for like specialized stuff like data science or machine learning. Um, because I do think it can be done. I think the, the, the kind of environment for it to get done is Silicon Valley. And I, I hate to sound like I'm just one of these startup people banging on the drum of, of Silicon Valley, like we're the only ones who can do it. It's not that, but I do think it's one thing that, that Silicon Valley has done very, very well um, is getting kind of building the environment for, for really, really innovative stuff. Really, really smart kids. You know what I'm trying to say. And I, I think there's, again, you had, you had a lot of really good points in the fact that I think it, it makes sense that there's different incentive structures. You know, so you, you have a kid who graduates and is exceptionally good at doing these types of programming and, and machine learning or AI or anything, and they go to a large prime. That large prime's incentive structure is different than a startup because a startup is like, yeah. high, hey, high risk, high reward, like let's let's swing for the fences and and really make some big impacts and make some cool stuff. Where a large prime, like large primes don't swing for the fences. Like they get base hits, they, you know, they're, they're, they're looking for that like slugging average, if you will. Like we're just, we're just trying to make money over time. And that's not a bad thing. Like we, we need large primes and we need them to do a good job. But I think everybody has their lane. Just like you can't, you can have the best programmers and the best company trying to produce products with no end use, end user input or any guidance. And they're going to do their very best but they, they're probably not going to do an exceptionally good job because they don't have that insight. So it's the combination of things. It's using the subject matter experts in the military, the people who actually are the end users. Um, and again, another thing that Paco and I talked about, or actually, no, it wasn't Paco, it was Rex uh, Wysak. 
with uh, Rex and um, and uh, on on his episode from um, I forgot what uh, what I called that one, but either way, uh, Rex and Blake were uh, were on that one. Maybe I called it that, but it, they they were talking about how an engineer envisions the way a pilot wants to or will do something isn't always wrong, but it it's not always exactly the way a pilot wants it just because like they're not a pilot and I'm not, I, yeah. I won't try to tell an engineer how to produce it. So I, I think that is why like the different incentive structures and just the inherent differences in, in people's roles. And we need everybody. Like uh, one of the things is, you know, active duty military members have all the, the smarts, they know what's going on. And then they can't really help. There's no, you know, cause obviously there's conflict of interest and all those things where you can't be active duty and, and help companies make better products, even though that's exactly what you should. So, so, but there is a place where hiring ex-military retired military, uh, to help, right? Like I assume that there's a lot of use and benefit from having military or prior military people helping out. Yeah, uh, big time. And uh, before I get into that, I do want to say you, you made me think of something. Um, it's the task force again. It's like that, that. that's why you need, you know, you hear everybody, I think it's like a trend now to bring up that sandwich thing. Like the, oh, if I tell you how to make a peanut butter sandwich and I, you know, oh, I don't yeah. tell you like exactly. Yeah, uh, it, it's that. That's That's like another feather or another reason to do the task force, like a small task force going around saying, you know, finding really innovative stuff to solve tomorrow's problems for the DOD. You can't just have an engineer. You can't just have a pilot. You can't just have a contracting expert. You're going to get the messed up sandwich. You need, you know, you need multiple parties there in a small little group going around and assessing. And you probably need a bunch of them and they need to be exceptionally smart. I don't know about exceptionally. They need to be like, this is going to be an effect of like, it's not scalable, I guess is what I'm saying. It's not really a scalable thing. That's okay. We kind of, in Silicon Valley, we get like addicted to scalability. Um, sometimes non-scalable. I can't remember who I'm stealing this from, but maybe like a base camp. There's not, like sometimes non-scalable is the, is the move. And I think that trying to find the bleeding edge and apply it to the military from a technical standpoint is not a scalable mechanism or activity. I think it is, in fact, very custom very like ad hoc very not scalable i think you need a task force of like the right crew oceans 11 kind of you know moving around freely um finding their own finding in their opinion the kind of best best stuff to move the board excuse me move the needle um to answer your question bringing on i think it goes hand in hand bringing on a either retired or collaborator um, who is active duty is as close as you can get to that from the private sector side. Like from our point of view, absolutely. Because we, we can't, we can only fill like the engineering seat um, in my opinion, from, from like a Silicon Valley company standpoint, we need a hell of a lot of subject matter expertise from the military to kind of help us say like, Oh, that's, you know, that's nifty we don't give a shit about that or this matters a ton more than you would think. Y'all don't care about it. We really care about it. Um, so yeah, I think that that's something that I do see that works very well is companies hiring um, or let me put it this way. People at least get that they need to hire um, some subject matter experts. I think that's, that's, 
you know, pretty standard. Most of the time, it's probably not Silicon Valley companies doing that. It's people who are like dedicated to defense contracting. And in those situations, they're like founded by subject matter experts. So I would say a little bit yes, a little bit no. We let's let's evangelize that. Like let's get Silicon Valley companies to realize, hey, you should probably throw you know, a two star on your board, or you should probably hire someone who is recently separated. Um, I don't want to get into all of the pilots leaving, but like hire some folks, you know, go They're They're out there. They're looking for jobs, you know, go hire some people because you can build software very quickly. You don't know what the hell you're doing it for unless you can connect with the military. And I, I, one this is not a spear. So I apologize if there are any generals listening. Uh, but one oh, yeah, tough same. part <laughs> is that, yeah, but the one tough part with hiring generals, which I think generals like 100% have a better big picture perspective, you know? So we talk about, you know, you break, you break military thinking into kind of three categories, the tactical, I always forget strategic and operation or operational and strategic. So tactical, operational, strategic level thinking. So generals obviously have the strategic and operational thinking down. So big picture, how is the broader military going to use this? Uh, and I, I would never pretend to say I could replace a two star or three stars perspective, but the two star and three star haven't for the most part, there's probably a couple out there who are wildly tactical still, don't have a ton of on the ground, you know, the kind of the guys who are currently pushing the buttons uh, perspective. Uh, so tactics change, capabilities change. Uh, so th that's one of the things that I think is it's a weird kind of push pull in like you need that all of the perspectives, you need the tactical, you need the operational, you need the strategic per, uh, perspective, because this this is not living you know, just like you said, yes, it will scale someday if it's successful and it, and it makes, and it works, but today it just needs to work, you know, and don't yeah. let like the scalability be the enemy of just making a product that does what needs to be solved. Um, so yeah, I, yeah. I agree with you. I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up. Cause I, I did kind of lump in like two star or pilots under the same breath. And that, that's not fair. It's not, no one person can know it all. I mean, it, we go back to the Emily Murphy thing. It's crazy how big defense is, defense contracting is, you know, even all, all of like even the communication between defense is, is like another career. Um, it's, it's almost easy to kind of map it over to academics. Like everyone kind of has a PhD in their own little thing. And there's not one person who's like, I'm just good at academia. Like there's, there's not, there's no one person can do all that. So you, you kind of do want both. If I was doing, my own, you know, Silicon Valley and we were going to company startup and I was going to say, hey, we're going to take, we're going to be 80% defense or something like that. You don't just want a two star. And I think that that's, that's probably a failure um, from a lot of companies. I don't have, I don't, I don't want to speculate and say that's like a massive problem plaguing uh, the industry right now because I don't have enough data on it. But I would bet if you hooked yourself like a fancy two-star, you'd be like, we're done, sweet, we get it. We got military, big checkbox for like, out. do we have subject matter expertise here? And that's not fair. That's kind of putting too much pressure on that dude um, or lady uh, because they they do have a certain subject matter. It's, it's, that, it's a subject. And you also need people who are really, really close to the problem today 
Um, again, don't want to throw any spears. It's a hell of an accomplishment. I've never done anything close to that level of commitment and focus to get up to the general level. Um, and I probably never will in my life do anything that that's <laughs> substantial. So I'm not trying to be disrespectful, yeah, same here. but that you are far from the cockpit, so to speak. Like you're not, you're not the right guy to ask for today's, you know, problem set, or you, you at least don't have the same perspective. You well, might know more it, about like how products actually get acquired. You know, you might know more about like, Eh, that's there's a trend there. I saw this happen again in the '90s, and eh, it's going to fizzle out. Shit like that. That's you know the warfighter's not going to know that. You know. Well, and, and I think yeah, like you said, those the difference in the in their perspective. Like they they may still fly. You know, generals one, two, three, four stars may still fly in airplanes, um, and they may you know they may have a lot of just experience over the years that keep them re like relatively current because they are in briefings or making decisions on like what tech we're buying and you know, what capabilities we're going to have, but that application of them. I mean, so I did uh, suppression of enemy air defense. So seed in the F 16 and I did it my whole career. I mean, I I went to Misawa, which is a seed base. Then I went to McIntyre, which is another seed base. And then I went to Holloman, which is the FTU. So uh, the, where we teach the new students, and I had, I think it was like an eight month gap between leaving my last base, which was a seed base. And then I didn't do seed for about eight months. And then they were like, all right, you're back doing seed because there's a seed top off course and stuff had changed in eight months. Yeah. Stuff had changed. And I was like, whoa, that was fast. Like I am, I am out of date less than a year later. So now you think Insane. people who haven't been, yeah, like in the tactical side in years, you know? So, uh, so, th so there's something about it that, about that, that is, um, that, that we just have, it's, we just have to acknowledge it and understand it's yeah. a reality. Uh, one, one story here, like, I, oh, let's go ahead. I was going to say oh, now no, I was in well, here sweating because I feel like I threw yeah. a spirit generals. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I, bad. And I, don't I didn't mean it. I mean, the, <laughs> the cool thing that I've, us. Help us. yeah. <laughs> Well, and the funny thing is that, uh, like, like any generals actually listen to my podcast, but either way, the, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> the, yeah. But the, the thing that I've found like young, young me, when I was a Lieutenant and a captain, I mean, like an 05, like a Lieutenant Colonel above, I was like, I need to be anywhere other than in the same room with them. And just because I was like, I don't know, like, I don't want to, you know, get myself in trouble. But the reality is like, as I've grown up and interacted with, Oh, you know, fives, oh sixes, colonels, even even some generals and limited uh, experiences. Uh, they're the same dudes. They're just you know, yeah. especially like the fighter pilot ones I've met. They're they're still bros. They're just bros that are way more successful than me. You know, so it's <laughs> it's uh, we still have a lot of the similar conversations I have with my friends. So I've I uh, you know, if I were to go back and or talk to maybe some young you know. Uh, people looking to be fighter pilots, I would say like, take those opportunities. Cause those one stars randomly, those two stars, you get a chance to talk to them, like pick their brain, you know, even if it's a dumb question yeah. to him, maybe you gain something out of it. Uh, one story that I thought of when we were talking about engineers and pilots, um, I went to uh, AFRL, so Air Force Research Lab. They have them all over the country. Uh, I went to one, I won't get into too many of the details, but they wanted uh, some pilots to fly a simulator to test out some future capability. Um, and so they were like, okay, you know, we're, we have a tactic. 
we're trying to change that tactic with this new technology, which is how these things go. And uh, so the engineers imagined one way we would fly. And that was like a, a very deliberate, sl- like not slow airspeed, but like we are effectively going to like rejoin with the threat and then like kill the threat and then move on. And then they see us and the, me and one of my buddies, Drago, which uh, his episode dropped relatively recently. Uh, we get in there and we are ripping around. I mean, we're like 450 (laughs) knots, just like zooming across. Like we're, you know, we're like high aspect, like right over the top of these things. And, uh, and just like laying waste. And they're like, we had no idea that's how you would fly. And we were like, Oh yeah. Cause well, and it's, and it's like, could you do what you got to do? You know, like I have, I'm just going to do this because this makes the most sense right now where the engineers, when they were doing their testing just to make sure all their modeling was correct, were just like, it was, it was very much a stable, like uh, almost like operating in a vacuum. And then we were like, Hey, this exactly. is working. And, and they were like, we didn't expect you would do that with it. And we were like, well, you know, we, we will. So, so there's a lot of that, that you, you kind of can't, can't understand unless you just, you know, get the dude's perspective, which I appreciated that they reached out and were like, Hey, come up and, and show us what you would want and what you would totally so they can better understand the problem set. That's, and that's the right way to say it is perspective. That's the, that's, that's the word I was looking for this whole time. It's, it's not that a a two star is like been out of the cockpit too long necessarily. It's not that a, you know, current pilot doesn't understand acquisitions or doesn't understand trends in the military. And it's not that an engineer can't Google. It's that like, it's the perspective. It's the lenses that you're seeing the same exact thing through that, like put those people at the same table, a couple of them, you know, one from each party or whatever, a fellowship of the rings, if you will. And then <laughs> that, yeah, you're going to get to Mordor. Cause I'm telling you, like it's, it's the, the different perspectives are useful and they aren't you can't you can't be a dwarf you can't be Gimli and Legolas you just can't you can't be both you gotta you gotta pick a side yeah. you gotta pick a side um I yeah so that's who in this uh, analogy but no. <laughs> dude we can go so far down <laughs> I'm just turn this into a Lord of the Rings podcast um yeah. you said something that reminded me of something that I wanted to bring up with um with you today uh i was re- listening to one the other day and bender said something that that kind of i had to like rewind to make sure i heard it right and wanted y'all to elaborate for me um he was saying that going from like i think he was saying the f-35x is that right the f-35tx um and he was TX, saying like transitioning the, yeah, and he was saying the uh, the tactics are changing faster than anything in the jet, and that they change quite a lot, and that threw me for a loop. Is it like is that large scale tactics, like how to engage in general, or it's like it's all? Is it like can you? That was surprising to me that tactics are changing all the time. Um, can you elaborate on that? I find that very interesting. Yeah. So you kind of so it gets exacerbated in new platforms. So you have a new platform and they're really still figuring it out, like how things work. So the 35, when it first came out, I think this was on the, uh, the, uh, Merck episode. So, uh, yeah. Greg, 
Merck Frana, uh, really cool dude. Um, he, he was the initial cadre in the 35. So he experienced, I mean like ground level F 35 where like, you know, every week they're figuring out new stuff or new tech is being kind of unlocked because these jets are like getting like fully developed because test pilots are literally still doing like developmental tests on them. So, um, so yeah, but I would say every platform, every jet is experiencing this because what ends up happening is say you're, you're flying an F-16, which is not, not new, by any stretch of the imagination. But what ends up happening is you still get software updates to your jet. So stuff will change like, hey, now we have a better capability of doing whatever. And then now your tactic can change because now you can do the thing that you previously could not. And so the F-35 is just doing that. And at a period of time, it was like weeks and then it was months and, you know, six months. And then there's going to be a time just like the F-16 where it's like every year, your jet is going to kind of level up effectively and you're going to get a, a better capability to hand adversary jamming. You know, they, your radar wants to see the bad guy, the bad guy's jammer doesn't want you to see him and it's going to be this fight. And so we have this, uh, it's like heat seeking missiles is a really great way to explain it. The first heat seeking missiles had no countermeasure detection or deterrent or anything because it was like, I just see a heat source and I go after it. And, you know, bad on you if you if the sun happens to be in the background because it turns out that thing's going to go after the sun. So, but then the enemy was like, wait, all I have to do is put out something else hot and then your missile is going to go after the other hot thing maybe. And then they were like, okay, the bad guys are now dropping flares, which is literally just like something that is maybe the same heat, maybe slightly hotter, depends. Um, then your engine to decoy off that missile. So now they're like, okay, now we have to have some logic in the missile to then say, Hey, I see two heat sources. And then the missile needs to figure out which one's which and go after the right one. And this has happened. I mean, since like the seventies where it's like, we have infrared countermeasures. Then the missile has infrared counter countermeasures. And then the enemy comes up with another, you know, and so that's, that's why the tactic is always changing uh, because the enemy is always gets a vote. We say Uh, they get a vote in what we can or what we have to deal with. And then our tactic will change. And then we get even new software. It's the same missile, but new software in the missile. And now the missile can handle like infrared countermeasures better. And okay, then, so that that helps. Like that that makes more sense to me yeah. than like you're redrawing. It's not that you're like coming up with like, oh no, knight to you know d four is actually the smarter move here. It's that like yeah. it's an effect. It's a direct effect of the software or the tech. Like okay, now given that our heat seekers are also effective in these situations because they have counter countermeasures or whatever, that changes how we would play in this setup. Well, exactly. And there's, and there's some things that are like little changes that it's like, Hey, remember when you wouldn't shoot your missile in this case, now you can. And you're like, Oh, cool. And then sometimes they're like, Hey, remember when you thought you were alive at this range from this bad missile? You're dead actually. So, you know, (laughs) like exactly. So like, Oh, we, you know, we didn't carry the one or whatever. So, you know, now you have to leave X number of miles farther or, you know, so like some of it is like an entire tactical change. Like everything you now do relative to this threat 
is changed. Or like, hey, you just have a little bit better game in something. So there's there's a lot of that, but you never stop learning. Like if anybody thinks, hey, I'm going to go be a fighter pilot specifically, and I'm going to like learn it, and then I'm going to be done learning. And a lot of careers are this way. You're always learning. You're always learning new stuff. Uh, probably at least once a month, uh, there should be weapons academics. So the weapons officer, who's the tactical leader, is going to say, hey, these are the new things that are coming out. Our books that tell us what to do are always being rewritten. It's like they drop the book and almost immediately start writing the next version of the book uh, because stuff changes that fast. And it's only going to change faster in the future because in the past it was all hardware. It was like if we want to make a change to a jet, it has to be a hardware change. But now, uh, which is the correct thing to do, like making things more modular and making stuff where I can change the software and get a different output from the same hardware. I mean, that's like, that's some quick changes. And that's, that's really the exciting thing. And that's where tactics generation is going to explode. Yeah. I just can't, I can't get away from like the, that even more is making me think like the fellowship of the ring setup is the right way because you need with that many moving parts, you need, just as many like perspectives seeing the same thing through different lenses and saying, Hey, wait a second, this actually applies to radar. We had no idea this would apply to radar, but now we can engage from, you know, wherever the hell two miles out or whatever, instead of 1.5. So yeah, I think I'm, I'm really beating the drum. That's kind of my big thing recently is it's not like the, the, the old, it's just like you said with, seed changing every eight months the the what contracting what worked for contracting on both sides of the table what worked for the pentagon and the industry in 2005 not anymore that's not the setup anymore and it's not it's not just that like oh so big bad silicon valley came in and now they're doing it. that's not it it's this it's just that like shit changes you need to invite more people to the the fellowship you gotta have uh kind of a representative from each camp and I think that, again, not scalable, but that's going to have the biggest impact for the warfighter. That's going to keep us up, you know, up front, ahead, bleeding edge. If you have members of kind of every little camp that's relevant going around and maybe it's hunting for product. Maybe it is picking winners. I find myself saying picking winners a lot recently. Um, maybe it is. Maybe it's just that. But maybe it's, it's, it's more broad or you don't even want to limit it. Maybe it's just kind of figuring out what the application for bleeding edge technology in the commercial market is for. How does it map over? What's the, what's the effect? Why, why does this matter for the military? Does it matter for the military? So when something like, you know, VR mass produce, like pretty decent, you know, the Oculus or something, pretty decent VR comes out in the commercial space, you have instead of just, you know, a couple of people at DARPA or whatever saying like, Oh yeah, we've kind of explored this. You have a, you know, cutting edge group of people saying, here's, here's the best ver you know, activity for this or the best application for this in the military. Let's run with that, you know, kind of double down on this. And then the Pentagon throws money at it. When I think, so kind of expanding on what, what is probably going to happen? Again, I, I can't see the future, but I'm going to make some assumptions here. So we'll take like, data-driven readiness. So like Crowdbotics' debrief capability uh, that they're creating. So now we're taking a fighter pilot 
who will go fight another fighter pilot or a group of fighter pilots and they'll come back and then they will use AI to help analyze that fight. So now we're going to, we're going to not only gain the benefit of having the computers help us focus our efforts. So we're going to now have a more timely um, debrief and a more focused debrief to hopefully like glean the most information we can in the best amount of time. But then beyond that, now we're going to have the ability to now leverage that technology and that capability to do the next thing. So I expect as we get more and more stuff like automated scheduling and and AI analytics and debriefs and all these things, it's going to allow us to then spend our time on different things. And it may be tactics generation. It may be understanding that the thing we thought we were doing correctly or incorrectly is not true because now we have a computer who's like, no, 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 no. Like the reality is this. And I think that's what we're going to find. And we've talked about this a lot in the past is I think there are so many things in the data that we already capture that is missed because we just don't have something that is objectively better than a human watching screens and three like 3d positional data from tispy data uh like we don't leverage computers to help us with that and i think that is going to be a big game changer yeah and this kind of goes back to the stovepipe nature of at least the usaf i assume it's the rest of the dod as well um some groups are you know some groups are kind of already doing it and playing around with it and have been for a few years and some groups are like uh we take a Polaroid of the jet and that's what we use for debris. <laughs> Some groups are like, it's, yeah. it's a huge amount of variability. So um, yeah, I think, you know, good tie in or I can plug our company or whatever. This is like one of those things I would say the task force would have recognized an ideal, you know, fellowship of the rings 10 years ago or whatever would have said, okay, Hey, hang on a second. We are putting a significant amount of the burden on eyeballs and subjectivity where, holy crap, like software's caught up to this. Like it can just say every, you know, fraction of a second, here's exactly where the jet was. Here's how fast it was moving. Here's its energy. Here's its, you know, angle, et cetera. All of that. Why not let computers do what computers are good at on the time-saving side alone? Just because IPs, you and I know this, uh, you know it much better than I do. IPs have an exorbitant amount of pressure on them and they stay late. They, if they don't stay late, the job doesn't get done right. They, they kind of have a, a huge, it's kind of, it's a bit lopsided in my opinion. A huge amount of the burden is on IPs and structure pilots and stuff like this, just saving time helps, you know, helps them if they're clearer headed, they can be a better teacher or instructor. Um, and then you get into like the other effects of looking at the data you, you kind of touched on it, writing tactics, looking at the efficacy of weapons, um, new weapons, looking at stuff like we don't know what the latest and greatest, you know, NGAD system is or what its capabilities are. Plug it in, see what happens when, you know, in any given scenario, analyzing stuff that where you would have way too many people on the ground trying to, you know, kind of follow along, by the way, in different distinct debrief tools for large scale exercises like red flag or orange flag. That's a that's a big hassle to analyze the exact kind of every second what went down. Um, why not go nuts with software in, in fields like that? Um, that's kind of what we're trying to do. So um, Vader's been mentioning DDR, it's 
data-driven readiness is this product we built. And it, it does have some debrief capability. I would like to see it rolled out um, as just a debrief tool. I think that would be a step in the right direction. We use uh, AI and ML to kind of assess what happened during the sortie. And then we score um, exactly like, you know, if you attempted a maneuver, we score it based on the textbook kind of parameters. It can also be used just to assess, you know, weapons, you know, BFM, any, any of this kind of stuff. And so I, I would file all that under like maneuvers that we can score. Um, and so we're, we're, we're interested in running with that um, and seeing what, you know, value that brings might just be data management, moving data around, sharing data. That's kind of a big initiative. Um, and, you know, wherever it's like the most valuable, but that's, that's, that's what we kind of keep touching on for the listener. Some context there. And yeah, sorry. Yeah. Sorry, everybody. No, I just assume you'd, uh, you'd already done your research. Yeah. One, one thing I think viewing BFM, so we'll kind of, we'll speak broad brush here, like viewing BFM as the large motor skills of how we execute airplanes in airplanes. Technically it like, having analytics help you with those large motor skills and then demonstrating proficiency with the analytics in that ability of like, Hey, here's our windows for execution for performance that you say you want to meet to be able to maintain an offensive position. If you're an offensive, uh, dog fighting or BFM basic fighter maneuvers, and then be able to prosecute whether it's with your missiles or with your gun on your aircraft, we'll call those large motor skills. And we demonstrate proficiency. And just like we talked about scalability, it doesn't have to be baked in initially, but we want to demo pro that capability. Now we talk fine motor skills. These are massive multi-aircraft, 60, 70 aircraft in a red flag. And now we can run analytics on, hey, what did we want to achieve? And what did we actually do? And did we buy more deaths because we didn't meet our tactic? Or did we not lose anybody, even though we deviated from our tactic. And then these are like those fine motor skills, especially when you start getting into fifth and sixth gen, where the rules for an F-16, like going to kill the bad guys is different than for fifth and I assume sixth gen. So they are also going to need this capability to hopefully have computers help them confirm tactics or invalidate tactics uh, that they're not currently realizing. So I think I think there's a lot of goodness that can come out of specifically just analytics, you know, the data analytics side of everything. Totally. Totally. And there's so much. What, one thing that Air Force has done really well is data collection. Like there, there is good data. It's very rich data. The, the, even from F-15, uh, like in the training environment, there's a ton of data that's coming off the jet, not really being utilized or not being, you know, examined as thoroughly. There, there, there needs to be kind of a widespread updating of the way data is processed in the DOD. And, and that, like, it, it, I'm now speaking to pilots. If you're looking to kind of bridge over to the private sector, that's just a, that's one example, one area that's not even necessarily bleeding edge. Um, that's one area that, you know, we've been able to make an impact in just a couple of years. I think we're going to continue to make an impact and even kind of grow our footprint. This is the kind of stuff that like Silicon Valley is rocking and rolling on. 
we need the help of pilots or the warfighter or whomever is next to the problem for that specific thing. Same, there's it's data, so it's not just pilots. I don't want to limit it to that, but like we need y'all's help to come in and say, hey, here's the application for this. Like we wouldn't have just been able to sit there and say, oh, I bet the USAF doesn't utilize the data coming off of the Strike Eagle. We could probably build a debrief tool for that. No, we had to like pair up with some fighter pilots who said, hey, is data scientists, is data science here yet? Can we, you know, is this possible? We said, yeah, we think so. Let's play around with it. There you go. And that, that, that's, you know, we come back to, you kind of got to pair up the right people with the right people um, to see not only what's possible and to build it, but to then apply it in the right place. And I'm doing all of this, by the way, just so that I can get to space. It's not that I love fighter yeah. pilots. <laughs> I'm trying to get to space force as soon as possible. Yeah. I'm mad that I never got to fly in the Strike Eagle as soon as we signed the contract. No one ever took me up. Next stop, I'm going to. Sp- I'm trying to get to space. So there you go. They'll probably make data science for. Yeah, they'll make good on that. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, Strike Eagle guys are sandbagging. Well, the uh, not to derail <laughs> the conversation, but but mildly derail the conversation. Two things. One, a update. So uh, on the first episode that we talked. Top Gun Maverick had just come out and we talked a lot about Top Gun Maverick. And I actually made a statement that I later saw, cause obviously I watched it again. Uh, I later yeah. saw that I was incorrect. So remember when Maverick was going like mock, I think it was like eight or nine ten. or something. I think he he's like, 10. well, yeah, but he's, he's not quite there. He's like getting oh, ready to do oh, his yeah. last run. And he's like, Hey, I'm just going to like flip a you. And I was like, that would take like three States. Well, sure enough, when they go back to the control center, I look and there's like the map of the U S and he literally like bangs a left in Utah and then ends up in like Montana going back the other way. And I was like, okay, nice. yeah, I dig that like that. All right. Yeah. Good so for them like, okay, for okay. building it right. Yeah. yeah well, yeah, it's a turn radius, you know, it's not like it's high science. It's like, uh, you know, degrees per second and stuff. So, uh, yeah. so I had to correct that, you know, I'm not trying to put out any, uh, BS info. So now that's I have right. a yeah, this isn't a fake you. news podcast. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. This podcast we, takes we keep it serious here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I appreciate my buddy Tron. Uh, he like when these episodes air and he, uh, I appreciate that he listens to him and he'll go, Hey man, turns out like it's actually this. And I'm like, Oh, I didn't know that. So uh, he's way smarter than another, me. So it makes sense. Why you need another, you need a Jamie and you need like a fact checker to be like, that's right. <laughs> yeah, guy, exactly. Like, no, hell is this guy talking that. about hiring two star generals. What the hell? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just stop what you're saying. Just, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But the, uh, the, uh, so one question I have for you, and this is going to make some people mad. Hopefully not me. So, I mean, I was an F 16 guy. Now I fly the C model. Um, but you've hung out with strike Eagle pilots, F 16 pilots, F 22 pilots, you know, the, the gamut of fighter pilots. And I think it may be even a 10 pilots. So attack pilots, um, who, what's your favorite community? A 10. Oh, nice. <laughs> I, hate to, I, I hate to have an answer so quickly. Yeah, I, I am yeah. glad I'm, I'm glad you're, you're stroking my ego here. I, this is one thing we do pretty well for a small uh, defense contractor is buddy up with pilots. We have a pretty good Rolodex at this point of people who know what they're talking about, um, depending on the aircraft. Um, the community that's the coolest is a different question from uh, what's the coolest aircraft. Coolest aircraft I got, it's the Warthog. I like, I think it's the yeah. best. I like the A-10 the best. I think it's the coolest thing in the world. Um, the coolest community of fighter pilots... You know, 
You can I can't say Strike Eagle because they're <laughs> bomber pilots. You know, it's oh, not, yeah. they're not. I didn't really say fighting. that, everybody. It wasn't me. Yeah. yeah, I would say the coolest community of bombers is Strike Eagle pilots. You know, the best bomber <laughs> community is the Strike I Eagle. Um, I haven't met any B twenty one pilots yet, so who knows? But, yeah, no, yeah, I knew the B twenty one was going to come up. I wanted to get your two cents on the B twenty one. I would say the coolest community is fighter pilots like that's like a half-ass lazy answer to not yeah. piss anyone off that's the coolest cool. community is just fighters if you want to get in within that and say which one's the best you know to a layman like me it's just hard i can't even all you guys are so cool it's hard to say who's cooler than, it's like who's <laughs> it's all it's all gravy then yeah exactly shaq and kobe you know what do i i don't know who's cool. yeah. <laughs> well the the, <laughs> <After> we, <laughs> the thing i yeah <laughs> The thing I uh, take away from that is it's going to make it all the more sweeter when they defund the A-10. So uh, just get that thing out of here. Yeah. If, right? That's kind of the thing. I mean, you know better than I, but it's kind of held on longer than it was supposed to anyway, right? Yeah. And I'll say this, which I appreciate the A-10 because the A-10 is extremely good at what it does. And the fact that, you know, when the 35 is coming online, they're like, we don't need the A-10. We're going to have the F-35. And it's like you're going to use a stealth fighter to replace an A-10. Like, that's the most ridiculous thing. Like, the A-10 is very, very good at doing air-to-ground and the Sandy mission, which if anybody doesn't know what the Sandy mission is, which I don't really know, I'm I'm not a Sandy. Those are the people who who help pick up people who who end up on the ground. So if a pilot or multiple pilots or just people get stranded in enemy territory, uh, Sandys are going to come in and lay waste to ensure that those people get picked up and they've done that for decades and decades. So like I, I respect that mission uh, and they are literally the best at it and it would be difficult. Uh, Here's, here's a nod to the strike Eagle. I would say probably the only plane we currently have uh, is probably the strike Eagle or maybe the EX. If you want to say we currently have that, that could replace the a 10 in the Sandy mission solely because there's two people trying to make it work where the a10 is just mecked to be good at that uh yeah. so yeah there's i mean when the a10 does go away uh which i mean sooner or later all jets go away uh we will lose a capability sadly the reason it's going to go away is it's not survivable you know and most of our jets are not survivable in our near peer type fights um and that is that's just a reality um yeah, I think you nailed it. Exactly. And I don't I don't know what I'm talking about in this realm, but like <laughs> nothing else does that, right? Nothing else is like exactly for just coming down low, taking out whatever's there, whether it's a tank or some other ground forces or whatever the hell. Doesn't really matter. The A-10 will attack it. Um, and what else can really do that? Yeah, I mean, the A-10, everybody probably knows this. The aircraft was built around the gun. So there's a joke where it's like, oh, my, my jet has a gun. And then A-10 people say, my gun has a jet. Uh, and because it's literally the whole plane was built to how, like around, okay, here's the gun, build a plane. And so the gun is amazing. The gun is a 30 millimeter, uh, like, oh, is it a Gal 7 or something like that? Gal 6, doesn't matter. Uh, but either way, it's a massive gun. It shoots a 30 millimeter round. Uh, so yeah, tank killer. 
I don't know, turn a turn a three-story building into Swiss cheese. Like, I think they have 11 hard points where they can carry a complement of 500-pound bombs and Mavericks. And, and yeah, awesome. they'll fly at 300 feet. And the, the best thing I would say that, that, that makes them as good as they are at what they do is they can fly. They don't fly exceptionally lower. Like, they fly lower. Like, uh, in an F-16, I flew 300 feet. And a lot of A-10 guys fly 300 feet. But they can also have guys that fly 100 feet, which is lower. But the reality is they can get slow. And so in an F-16, I'm, I, I used to go 480 knots at 300 feet, which is its own problem set because you're going real fast. But the reality is when A-10s can get low and slow, it just slows the ground game down. So they can get like, they can just be slow, look out the window, say like, I see the bad guys, and then go after them. Uh, so they have a lot of loiter time because they don't have a super thirsty jet engine. They have these like more, we'll call them economical uh, motors that aren't going to get them that fast, but they don't need to get fast. They get low and slow and then they loiter a long time and they have a lot of weapons and they have one mission set and they get real good at it. So, you know, I'll, I'll you know, bag on other platforms and stuff, but the reality is every platform for the most part has a lot of utility and benefit uh, in what they bring to the fight. I mean, they wouldn't be there if they didn't have some aspect uh, and goodness there. So, yeah, we just we just like to, uh, you know, I mean, well, now that I'm in the C-model course, everybody likes to take shots at the F-16, and I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, I used to fly it, but now I'm a C-model guy. <laughs> You're like, oh, yeah, what's up with those guys? My God. Uh, <laughs> there's more F-16s, though, right? There's more, isn't it the most populous? The most numerous yeah, I, jet in the force. This is uh, you, people should definitely fact check this statement, but I think it's the most proliferated jet in the world. Like I think out of all jets, the F sixteen in the U S. and just other countries, I think it is the the like the biggest fleet of a single fighter. Um, but that, that rocks. Yeah, so I, I mean, think that rocks. Yeah, and there's there's a lot of. There's a lot of good stuff with the F-16. It has its capabilities, but it has its limitations, you know. So you're you're not gonna you're it's not not gonna perfectly replace an A-10. It's not gonna replace a C model, you know. It's it has its role, and I think a good pilot in F-16 can do that role very well, especially in Seed. And I would I would argue that Seed is one of especially F-16 Seed because Seed kind of varies between aircraft. Uh, that Seed is one of the most dynamic and fun mission sets you can do uh in any airplane and it is, and i enjoyed doing it because it was it was wild like it was so much fun i'm i'm surprised more people don't uh screw the pooch doing seed in the f-16 because there are tons of opportunities to uh get yourself in a bad spot you know run jets together so i appreciate that uh that seed pilots are professionals and and do their job well because it is it is not easy for one person to do all those things yeah, nice. Yeah, bam. Um, I'm looking for the contract for what? What's the A10 in space? That's where. That's the yeah. intersection I would like. I would like the to space contract 10. in. Yeah, yeah, the space yeah. ten. Yeah, how if we can get that? I'm in. <laughs> it's it's, yeah, space, it, you lose the loudness though, right? The like burr. You lose the the intimidation factor of the sound yeah. of an A10 coming and shooting at you because there's no sound in space. No one can hear you scream. Yeah. That's right. Well, and but you always it's less sneak intimidating. Up on them. Yeah, they never yeah, exactly. they never hear you coming, so you're like, hey, there you go. Uh, 
it's still it's uh, low orbit it's slow and it's low orbit. Yeah. <laughs> that's right the the space vipers are at like uh you know like way up there. Uh, and uh, the f-15 just still it just looks the exact same but it can fly in space yeah i was gonna say that's well that was a nice thing like going from the f-16 which like a block 50 f-16s and 52 i mean really all f-16s can get up into the high 30s and the 40s but you're not maneuverable at all and so I, I was doing a, a flight where I was high in the C model and it just, just flew. Like turns out when you have massive wings, like they work when the air is thin. Uh, so that yeah. was kind of fun, you know, like get up real high, like, uh, you know, and get fast. And it was like, yeah, the jet turns where the F-16 kind of like, it's like a leaf falling out of the sky. And you're like, well, we got to be real ginger with the airplane up here because yeah, it just, yeah. it just runs out of energy real quick. Cause not a ton of air is passing over those wings, so you gotta just take it slow, you know. Yeah. Um, well, Julian, right. I'll, I'll what, let, yeah. I'll, oh, any that? final thoughts on the B twenty one before we jump off? I wanted to get your like unadulterated perspective on the on the Raider after this newish announcement. Yeah, I I hesitate to say this because as if you ha- if people don't realize, most people get nervous to talk about like classified platforms. Like you look at them. And then I'm not supposed to speculate. So I'll try not to speculate here. Just like I said, and I guess it was actually a relatively good segue. Every aircraft we have has its role and its benefit and its goodness. And just looking at pictures, no briefings or anything, it looks rather similar to a B2. So now I wonder, like, what's its role like, what are we gaining? What tactical advantage? What benefit is there coming from having a B-2 and a B-21? And uh, Paco, his uh, his podcast, or not his podcast, he also has a podcast, which people should check out, the Merge podcast, but also he has his newsletter, which is, uh, and he said, I think it was last week or the week before, he called it the the B-2.1 instead of the B-21. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and I, I think that is like, again, as just outside looking in, I don't have any briefings. I just, I wonder what tactical advantage and what benefit we're gaining from a B-21 that a B-2 with upgraded guts doesn't give you. So that, that, that'd be, yeah. that's my argument. You know, like it, it, with, a, with like the F-15 EX is a perfect example. It's like, wait, we already have an F-15C and an F-15E. Is it just new technology inside and cheaper than buying six gen? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Then I see the the position we're in and why we're buying a new one. Maybe, you know, we we have limitations that I'm unaware of that the B twenty one is gonna fill. So not maybe a little spear a spear, tiny spear at the B twenty one, but no, I think that's polite. I think that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, that's informative and helpful for me. I hope so for the listener. My last, like, whatever the final thoughts or final last word or whatever is, yeah, I think my my big thing that I'm, like, recently kind of chewing on and mulling over and annoying everybody calling them in the middle of the night talking to them about is, like, you got to <laughs> have you gotta have some sort of... AFWorks does a good job. I think there's other groups that try to do this. And there's individuals that I didn't shout out who deserve credit for trying to do this. Um, but you got to have some sort of Lord of the Rings setup where individual experts are gathering together and saying, hey, pair this here. This belongs here. Um, 
and like the further you go, the more important it is because like data science is not even that cutting edge. And it was really difficult for us to find a long-term home. We think maybe we have that now at Nellis, working on some interesting stuff out there um, with test. And I think that that's a really good place for data. It took us a while. Like, there wasn't just like somebody who came out and was like, hey, here's where this belongs long-term. And that that's tough. I think that's a, that's a, that's not one person's job. That's like a task force type of thing. Um, so that that's kind of my final thing that I would like to push, or at least get smarter people than me talking about, because um, I think that that's how that's how you that's how you pair up uh, all of the power of innovation in the United States, greatest country on earth, and the DOD. Yep. Yeah, and I and I think exactly that having a task force and there there's that there's that balance where. The Air Force is so large and there's so many people because you you would want input from every aspect, but you, then you would have thousands of people on a task force, which would, you know, negate the task force's benefit. So having that balance of like a handful of people who have a very broad perspective who can provide insight there. And, uh, and I agree because I think there should be just like uh, General Brown was saying, like get do a little more handholding. Like we need to get the people who are super smart and can, re- can create products that never in my lifetime could I create that we need to get them in front of the right people who can allocate funds, who can sign contracts. Uh, because if we don't, we're going to have exceptional people with exceptional products that we're going to do nothing with or very little with. And we're not going to gain the benefit of the entire premise of the program, which is make a ton of small bets and then let the, you know, let the best kind of rise to the top. So I, I couldn't agree more, Julian. Um, but well, I'll let you get going. Cause we've been, uh, we've been running for a bit. Thank you again for coming on the podcast and, uh, and Dude, thanks for having me chatting. Yeah. Well, this is always wanna, a pleasure. Always keep... a pleasure to talk. Um, sorry if this is, I think other episodes are probably more informative. Um, but hopefully this is at least a little bit informative to see a Silicon Valley perspective, sorta, uh, for anyone listening so hopefully this is valuable thank you for having me on it's always 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 a pleasure yeah thank you do you want to give everybody your uh, your email and stuff they probably heard it on previous podcasts but you can always yeah send it um again. my name is julian j-u-l-i-a-n and the company's called crowdbotics.com just crowdbotics like robotics crowdbotics.com so julian at crowdbotics.com is my email i'd love to talk to any pilots ever um, that's kind of our cup of tea neck of the woods is fighter pilots in the USAF. Um, but I think there's a lot that Silicon Valley can do for the DOD. And I'm always just interested to talk, shoot the shit, hear from y'all, hear perspectives. And then if you've got ideas and you want to mull it over and chat, I'm always interested in that kind of stuff too. So, um, thanks Vader for having this big shout out to, uh, to Paco and the merge podcast as well. Um, but thanks for doing this. I think this is like enormously helpful to guys like me. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. And I, and I appreciate your perspective. Cause again, I can't, I can't glean your perspective without getting your input. So thank you for that. Everybody, if you want to reach out to the podcast and give us your feedback on what we're doing uh, well or doing poorly, uh, info at kodiakshack.com is going to be the email that you'll email and then uh, our website kodiakshack.com so uh, let us know what you think of the podcast uh, or if you uh, you want us to talk to people that we're not talking to uh, but thanks again julian see ya see ya
When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done.